for those of you who are in Sunday school this morning, it'd be interesting to see if among Origen's many writings, as uh, we were studying, the, the, Jim was leading the, uh, a lesson in Origen, one of the church fathers, uh, in one of his many writings, if he did a commentary on this passage. And you'll see uh, what I mean uh, as I go through this passage. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our salvation. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, it is quite remarkable to me that all of the mainline Protestant denominations, except for the Southern Baptists, have surrendered the gospel to liberalism. There are holdouts in the mainline churches that are contending for the gospel, but they're the minority. Uh, I think the decentralized church government of the Southern Baptists has really helped them fight back, uh, and fight back rather effectively against the encroaching liberalism. And it makes one wonder, where does bad theology come from? Paul answers this question in this morning's scripture passage. So, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We learned several things from these uh, two verses. First of all, uh, the emergence of bad theology in the church is not a surprise to God. He says... Uh, He tells, um, God tells Paul to tell Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons or the teaching of demons. So verse 1 clearly says that the Holy Spirit foretold these things. Secondly, the ultimate source of bad theology is is from demonic influence. Our physical world is not just a physical world. There is a spiritual realm. World history is affected and influenced by the presence of spiritual forces that we might overlook from time to time. There are holy angels doing God's bidding. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, they are called ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. There are also deceitful spirits or demons uh, whose goal is to hinder the work of the church. Satan himself is the head of these deceitful spirits. He is not a god. He is in no way comparable to God. He's only a fallen angel. But he is a tireless enemy of the church and his plans and, squeam, his, and schemes are quite effective. God allows him to be effective. God allows him to be active in order to help the church cling more closely to God. To realize just how much we need him. 
And so as Satan schemes, it causes us to ratchet down in prayer. It causes us to put on the spiritual armor. It causes us to go on our knees and persevere on our knees and bring all things to God in prayer. Because we know we need Him. And we know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The presence of the spiritual realm and the supernatural battlefield makes prayer absolutely necessary for the church. Absolutely essential. We are, we are full of pride if we think that we can stand in our own strength against the assault of deceitful spirits trying to worm their way into our congregation. We've got to be pretty hard-headed as well. Because we see denomination after denomination falling by the wayside, going off the path, forgetting about Christ, substituting other things for Christ. And we say, how can this happen? There is a spiritual battle. And we need to engage through prayer. God has given us prayer such a, a tremendous gift. Such a means of grace for the church. I'm so thankful for the different prayer meetings uh, in our congregation. Especially thankful for the 5 a.m. prayer meeting as we just wrestle with the Lord uh, for the church. And uh, we didn't finish. Well, we got started just a little late. But we didn't finish till 6.45, I think, this past uh, Wednesday. And uh, so I'm thankful for the, the, uh, the grace of prayer. But human beings also have a part to play in the formation of bad theology. Verse 1 says that humans devote themselves to these demonic doctrines. Why would one do that? Why would one devote themselves to these deceiving spirits and these uh, demonic doctrines? Paul suggests that they are not simply misguided. Rather... They know that they are out of step with the essential truths of Christ. Paul calls them insincere liars in verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, he says. Even though they know that they are sidestepping Christ, uh, sidestepping Christ, they press forward with their error because their consciences are so seared that they uh, reject the truth. They reject their Savior, Jesus Christ. Substitute some other sort of salvation. They are so intent on believing the lie that they ignore all evidence presented to them. I didn't have this in my notes um, because I thought we might be running short of time, but it may be helpful. Uh, Noah Eggert, I came up to his doorstep uh, Tuesday or Wednesday morning to drop my son off at the Eggerts, and Cheryl wasn't there, and a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses had Noah on the the front step, had him cornered, and so I I immediately knew what was going on. I saw the little watchtower flyer, so I hopped out of the car, and Noah said, here's my pastor, (laughs) with a big uh, look of relief. And I had been studying this passage, and, 
and in my mind, it's going through my, my mind, because all day Monday I'd been looking at this passage, and it's going through my mind. Their, their consciences are seared. Their consciences are seared. Their consciences are seared. So I decided not to take any other approach uh, around, you know, through this Greek word or, or through uh, this misinterpretation of the new, in the New World Translation, and I just went straight for the heart of the matter. And I said to the lady, who was obvious the leader, um, can you tell me that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? And Noah was a witness. He was right there. She would not say it. She kept uh, equivocating. She kept going around. And so I decided, this, this, her conscience is seared, so I'm going to uh, let this be a teaching moment for Noah and for her, the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses' apprentice. And I said... Well, I kept asking, why will you not say that Jesus is the only Savior? And she kept giving half answers. And I finally said, you don't believe Jesus is is the sufficient Savior because you don't believe that he's God. You believe that he did part of it. And you, by your good works... um, And by, you know, because they equivocate uh, or equate faith with good works and they're out there witnessing. So you do your good works and you meet kind of halfway in the middle. Um, And so you don't believe Jesus is is, uh, your only Savior. You You won't come out and say that he's not an adequate Savior. You're, You're equivocating. Your conscience is seared. And they, of course, left. But they are so intent on believing the lie that they, they ignore all evidence presented to them. When you, when you so commit yourself to a lie that you believe that lie without question, well, then the lie is complete. The Bible says that when people devote themselves to heresy that leads them away from Christ, it is not just a misinterpretation of Scripture. Rather... It is an unethical, purposeful twisting of Scripture. Listen to how Peter puts it in children from 2 Timothy. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And these matters he's speaking of is Christ. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's a purposeful, unethical, proactive twisting of the scriptures to be able to sidestep Jesus Christ. In the case of the false teachers in Ephesus, um, for whom Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. These false teachers had, an, had ul, ulterior motives that were causing them to twist the Scriptures. They were teaching that you could not be faithful to God while enjoying things in the physical world. Historically, we know that a strain of Gnosticism had entered into the early church. The Gnostics were heavily influenced by Plato. The Gnostics taught that there is something sinful about the human body. Therefore, Gnosticism denied that Christ had a human body since there's something defective and sinful about the human body. And they taught that a person should deny themselves all forms of physical pleasure. Paul 
if I had been Paul, I would have jumped in and, and gone um, after the theological debate. Paul, being much wiser than I am, decided to sidestep the theological debate and go after their practice. And so, he, uh, instead of entering into a debate about the nature of Christ, Paul addressed their insistence that a faithful Christian should not get married or eat certain foods. Look at verses 2 and 3. Through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Is not marriage by itself that is being opposed by these false teachers. Rather, they were teaching that a faithful Christian must abstain from the physical pleasure of sex. And in regard to food... Um, They were not saying that a person should abstain from eating. That would be impossible. But should avoid eating meats. And we might scoff at these these false teachers um, in, in, in what they were, in the practices that they were requiring others or seeking to require others to participate in or not participate in. Uh... But there are those that teach that sex uh, is not for pleasure, but only procreation uh, in our own day and age within the church. Therefore, they say that all forms of birth control are sinful. There are those who teach that sex is not for pleasure, but only to avoid lust. And this uh, view is typically drawn from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. And it says, now concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they had written about. See, they were having the same struggle in Corinth as they were in Ephesus. There were people saying, it's not good to have sexual relations. Um, Or, therefore, because um, sexual relations comes with marriage, it's not good to marry Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he says one of the purposes for sexual relations within marriage is to avoid lust. But certainly that is not the only reason. One cannot read the song, the the book of the song, the song of Solomon without understanding that sex is for pleasure. Uh, It'll... um, It'll burn your eyes at different points. Um, What is clear from 1 Corinthians 7 is that it is a sin to withhold relations, sexual relations, from your spouse. Now back to our original question uh, concerning where bad theology comes from. And my son says, not a moment too soon. (laughs) Um, So from my training in church history and in studying the New Testament, I'm convinced that people who commit themselves to heretical theology, to the doctrine of demons, as Paul calls it, because 
because they find Christ. They do this because they find Christ to be unsatisfactory to them or insufficient. People will commit themselves to all kinds of nonsense to gain a salvation while at the same time sidestepping Christ as the only and all-sufficient Savior. They so badly want to contribute something to their salvation. To restate what I've already said, Paul is not willing to simply say that these people are deceived. He says that they are insincere liars and that their consciences are seared. Let me make a few practical uh, applications. If heretics are insincere liars with uh, seared consciences that are rejecting Christ, then to pursue a biblical, Christ-centered theology, one must be committed to truthfulness rather than being an insincere liar. One must have a clear and tender conscience rather than having a seared, seared uh, conscience. And they must pursue Christ as their first love. There must be an experiential, subjective love for Christ in order for you to pursue a biblical theology without sidestepping Christ or going astray. Learning theology cannot be divorced from pursuing a Christ-like character. Listen to how many times Paul emphasized this vital point to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Character and theology must go hand in hand. A, a, a clear conscience must drive your pursuit of theology and your theology must drive you to have a clear Conscience, a pure heart, a holy life. First Timothy one eighteen through twenty, Paul reminds Timothy, "This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. How? Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, by rejecting faith and a good conscience." Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul tells Timothy that deacons must hold uh, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. When Paul made his appearance before Felix in Acts chapter 24, verse, 20, or verse 16, he said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and and man. Paul was a good theologian because he pursued gospel-empowered holiness. Love for Christ and a tender conscience is essential for us to resist the doctrine of, deacon, of demons. Sorry, not the do- doctrine of demons. Uh, I'm sorry. Never. I accidentally said de- deacons rather than demons, and I did not mean that. There was no, no Freudian slip whatsoever. I've known a lot of young men who have learned the doctrines of grace after being previously Arminians. And they begin to see God's sovereignty on every page of Scripture. And they become enthralled with God. But soon, many of these young men I've seen have become puffed up 
because they understand such a vital doctrine while so many other Christians reject it. And so instead of the doctrines of grace humbling them as the doctrines of grace are intended to do, and instead of the doctrines of grace helping them to better understand the love that Christ has for them, they become pretentious. If, you, if your pursuit of theology causes you to be puffed up or dismissive of your brothers and sisters of, in Christ who, dis, who disagree with you, you need to check yourself. Are you taking pains to have a clear conscience to both God and man? If the deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons are trying to worm their way into our congregation, then how should we conduct ourselves? That's the underlying question that Paul is asking, or wanting Timothy to ask, and Paul is answering throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Well, the answer may surprise you. How should you conduct yourselves? We are not to hunker down in a defensive posture and guard ourselves from ungodly influences. Uh, A defensive posture usually leads to a more careful way of living, which typically leads to a more legalistic way of living. A defensive posture actually opens us up to the the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Rather, we are to embrace our freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are trying to fabricate a legalistic uh, faithfulness by forbidding marriage or by requiring abstinence from, from certain foods, were denying to the people of God the good gifts that were to be received with thanksgiving. So look at verses 3 through 5. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and by prayer. Paul is saying that we, as Christians, are to enjoy our lives. And we are to enjoy all the pleasures that He has given to mankind. Everything God created is good, he says in verse 4, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, I bet many of you are thinking to yourselves, that sounds an awful lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're visiting with us, we spent close to a year in the book of Ecclesiastes um, prior to um, our series on 1 Timothy. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon says, Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Frankly, it also sounds like the first catechism, the shorter catechism, which says, the, the question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The consistent witness of Scripture is that we are to enjoy our life and we are to enjoy God's creation to the fullest. 
but we are to do so with thanksgiving to God. Giving thanks to God as the necessary and wonderful boundaries that God has given to us. Sex is to be enjoyed to its fullest within the marriage relationship. The husband giving himself completely to his wife. And the wife giving herself completely um, to her husband. Uh, Food is to be enjoyed. Uh, It's not just a utility or a necessary uh, calorie intake. It's not to be a substitute for for happiness when we are sad. Food is not to be a stress reliever. Food has its necessary and wonderful boundaries so that it is good and good for you. We are called to freedom in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to enjoy God's creation. The different rules and the man-made limitations hinder our walk with Christ. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, the head being Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It is God's grace that causes us to grow, not through a list of rules that we try to follow. If And he continues, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Paul's continuing on, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. And I'm sure those false teachers, as they were teaching people to abstain from marriage, to abstain from eating meat, There was an appearance of wisdom about that. But Paul says, these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What I'm saying to you, what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, is that Christ is your life. Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your source of sanctification. Christ is your salvation. Don't get distracted by all the shiny objects that will only lead you astray from seeking after Him. He is your goal. He is the only one who is able to help you live by faith and grow in grace. Those shiny objects when everything else is stripped away, are nothing more than deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. If they are hindering you and distracting you from your sincere love and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are free in Him. Live in Him. Love Him. Enjoy His creation for His glory. Our Father and our God, we come before you. We thank you that your word remains relevant. Father, it always surprises us how 
um, biblically-minded Christians can skip over passages like this, overlook the clear teaching of First Corinth or First Timothy chapter four or Colossians chapter two. God, it just reminds us of how easily our hearts are led astray. How none of these things, none of these walls that we build through legalism are able to uh, have any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, even as we celebrate this glorious uh, communion meal together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.